0: So that's with a cough. (laughs) This uh, Christmas we've been focused on the God that Jesus reveals. What is God really like? I'm amazed because uh, oftentimes when we get in a conversation with people and you ask them if they believe in God, almost everybody says, yes, I believe in God. But if you ask them, well, tell me about the God you believe in. What's he like? Uh, Almost everybody just goes belly up there's like no answer it's like well I really don't know and so we've been taking some time this Christmas as we lead into Christmas to uh, realize that one of the reasons Jesus came is to reveal the God who's really there and what he's really like and so we've learned a few things about this God first of all we saw that you know hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born um, God said in the scriptures that his name is going to be called Emmanuel which means God with us. And so Jesus is the exact representation of God. He's the imprint of his nature, the Bible says. And so when we look at Jesus, we're asking the question, you know, what is God like? And a couple of things we've already discovered. First of all, God is a lot closer to us than we imagine. Most people, when they think about God, think that he's distant. But we saw from the scriptures that, no, God is very, very close. And not just close in proximity, but he's close in terms of friendliness, that he loves us, that he knows us, uh, that he's looking for a relationship with us. God is much closer than most people realize. And then second, we saw that God is in control. Uh, God is all-powerful. There's not any rival power to God. God has revealed his plan for mankind in the scriptures, and there's absolutely no power that could stop him. And so when you watch the news and you feel like things are out of control and you're like scared because you're thinking about the future and what it might be and what might happen. So know this, the God that Jesus revealed is in control. You're not in control. That's the bad news. The good news is God is in control. And once we know that, it's a huge comfort for us. And then last week we saw that, you know what? God knows everything. God knows everything. He knows even insignificant things about us as individuals. God knows everything. Um, And um, there's really no point in trying to hide from God. There's really no point in trying to ignore God. There's no point in trying to pretend that God isn't watching me. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from God's sight. No creature is hidden from God. God knows everything, right? And so this is the God who exists. This is the God that Jesus reveals to us. He's close. He's in control. He knows everything. And this morning, I'd like to bring two other truths or facts about God uh, together to us this morning to think about together on this Christmas Sunday. Because Jesus reveals, and it's kind of the main reason why Jesus came at Christmas time, Jesus reveals a God who is both righteous and gracious at the same time both righteous and gracious at the same time. And this is really good news. Uh, Again, it's why Christmas happened. However, of all the uniquenesses about God, of all the truths about God, of all the revelations that God has let us know about himself, I might suggest to you that his righteousness is perhaps more misunderstood or more neglected than all the others. Because what, what it means is that God is always right. (laughs) So anytime you want to argue with God, anytime you want to disagree with him, anytime you think he doesn't know what he's doing, you are wrong. Because God is righteous. He is altogether righteous. He's always right. Which means anytime you disagree with him, you're wrong. And that's why I think a lot of people try to stay away from this truth about the way God really is. He is righteous. Every decision God makes is right. Uh, He's never wrong. Every word that God speaks is right. Every way that God thinks is right. God in his nature is righteous. So a couple of verses of scripture, Psalm 111, verse three, um, full of splendor and majesty is his work, And his righteousness endures forever. You don't have to worry that tomorrow God's going to wake up and make a mistake. That somehow God's going to be wrong, right? Um, Psalm uh, 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right in your rules. God is always right. Uh, Verse 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. God is righteous. He's right. He's always right. God is always right. Um, When we come to the New Testament, um, his righteousness almost like bumps up a notch to what's called holiness. In uh, 1 Peter, uh, Peter is uh, talking about how God is holy in verses 15 and 16. Uh, But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We all know that God made us in his likeness, in his image. And God is not only righteous, but he's holy. And um, when you think about that, God is holy. The idea of holiness is not just that God is right or righteous, but he's the only one that's right. In other words, it sets him apart from everybody else. Nobody is as right as God. Nobody is as holy as God. Uh, Holy is the idea of being set apart, and uh, his righteousness makes him exclusively holy. God always knows what's right, and he always does what's right. He is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You you might remember that um, in Revelation chapter 4, heaven is described, and God is sitting on his throne, and around his throne, there are these uh, creatures, these heavenly creatures, and uh, all day long, day and night, they are saying to God, holy, holy. Holy, holy Lord God Almighty, to you who was and who is and who is to come, holy, holy, holy are you. The outstanding characteristic of God, his holiness, his righteousness. And what it means is that he's right all the time. Um, It means, too, that God's thoughts about you and me and God's actions toward you and me are always right. Right? And you don't have to ever worry that God will act or think in some way that's wrong toward us. It's a tremendous comfort to know the truth that the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ um, is always right. And you can rest assured that when a thought comes to your mind that God is not right. When a thought comes to your mind that God's not fair, God's not being fair. People have these thoughts, you know, like I just spoke with uh, somebody this week, a new person that I just met, and uh, they had an incident happen in their life years and years and years ago, and, and ever since then they said, you know what, I just have nothing to do with God. I'm done with him. He was wrong, you know, in letting this thing happen. And uh, I would suggest to you that any time it comes into your mind and thought that God is wrong, um, that God is not telling you the truth, that God is lying to you, um, that thought is not coming from God. That's coming from the enemy, right? You might remember if you go all the way back into the Garden of Eden and think about our first parents in Genesis chapter 3, Satan came to our original parents and said, God is lying to you. God's not telling you the truth. You won't really die. God knows he's holding out on you. He's not being fair with you. He knows that if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. You'll be your own God. And uh, every time, you know, if you think about it, every time somebody suggests that God is not right, That's what lies behind all the evil in the world. If we would all agree that God is right, and we would surrender to him and submit to him, you know, if we could, um, we would all uh, have a different uh, posture. Uh, But we have, I I think all people have a sense of right and wrong. All people, you ever notice that people have a, even in different cultures, even though it would be different than our sense of right and wrong, everybody has a conscience. Even little kids uh, say, uh, you know, it's not fair. Right? You were growing up, you probably said lots of times to your parents, you know, this isn't fair. Um, It's not fair. I remember um, a day when our son Brett was playing a Pop Warner uh, football game. Uh, I think he was seven or eight years old at the time, and I'm on the sidelines kind of watching him play. And um, he's in his three-point stance. He's lined up across from his opponent. Uh, The quarterback is, you know, calling out the signals, and all of a sudden, Brett stands up right in the middle of the game. He just stands up, and he comes running over to where I am. You know, and the referee's blowing a whistle and yelling at him, and, you know, I'm like, what is going on? You know, I thought he had to go to the bathroom or something, but (laughs) he comes over to me, and he says, that guy spit in my face. That's not fair. (laughs) He was lined up in his little three-point stance, and the opponent spit in his face, and he was so shocked and so undone by it, just... Couldn't believe that, you know, how did he know that that wasn't right? How did he know that wasn't fair? I mean, I never taught him. I don't think the coach ever taught him. And I did what any good father would do. I said, well, you get back in there and knock that guy clear to the other end of the end zone. Right? How did he know that it was fair? You know, a wise parent, I think, wants to cultivate that sense of right and wrong with God's righteousness. You want to inform that sense of right and wrong. That's why I'm so glad that the Hacks, uh, Dave and uh, Jennifer Hack, are are willing to teach this course, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Because you want to nurture that sense of right and wrong when it's young uh, with God's righteousness so that people can have a true sense of what's right and wrong. But, you know, how do you know when something's right or wrong? You know, you watch the news and some guy clubs an elderly lady over the head and steals the cell phone or something, and you say to yourself, that is so wrong. Some guy clocks his wife in an elevator, and the whole NFL gets all their stars to make a, you know, a commercial about how wrong, what does that sense of right and wrong come from? Well, the Bible says we all have a conscience. I think it's that faint little leftover of being created in the image of God, you know, uh, that uh, speaks to us. Um... Uh, our sense of right and wrong, that, that little voice of our conscience is a leftover from being created in the image of God. And the Bible says that, you know, the Jewish people receive the law from God, the first five books of the Bible, I- including the Ten Commandments. There's actually 613 laws in the first five books of the Bible. So the Jewish people, uh, they have it, you know, written down, but everybody else, the Bible says, uh, has a conscience. And by nature, the laws of God are written on the consciences of people. Uh, Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about that. And so we all have a, a sense of right and wrong. But God is always right. and We're made to be like him. You shall be holy, for I am holy, he says. But every one of us comes up way, 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 way short of the holiness of God. Our sense of right and wrong, our sense of righteousness is so distorted and so limited and so corrupted by the reality of sin and the world in which we We have kind of a, a cultural righteousness, right? We kind of look at the world and how it operates and then we figure out how we can fit in and, and we, we claim to be righteous because we compare ourselves to other people we, we adopt this sort of cultural... It's not the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is holiness and it's purity and it's truth and it's way higher than our uh, idea of what's right and wrong. And uh, we sense, you know, that even in the Christian community, uh, things that used to be so wrong now all of a sudden are embraced as right. And things that, you know, we used to know that God would be opposed to. And all of a sudden now, you know, there are whole churches devoted to uh, convincing the rest of the world that God is for uh, some sinful behavior and some standards of right and wrong and so on and so forth. And so we just sense this drift that's just moving away from this whole sense of righteousness. Righteousness. And then, uh, in addition to us not just uh, being informed and being close enough to God to have his sense of righteousness, in addition to that, instead of us owning our bad, we're pretty good at pointing it out in the next person. We can always figure out what's wrong and what's bad in the next person. But when it comes to us and owning our own bad, we rationalize, we blame other people, we make excuses, we make comparisons, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, we use distractions, we keep ourselves so busy. Think about, I was thinking this, Barbara and I were talking about this, what Christmas has become compared to what Christmas originally was. Think of what Christmas originally was. And then think about what Christmas has become. And think of the distraction. You know, not just for us, but for the world away from the best thing God ever did in sending his son into the world to be our savior. And people are so distracted by not bad things necessarily, but... Distracted, nonetheless, away from, you know, what God is trying to give us. And uh, so, you know, compared uh, to what Christmas was originally, uh, we've come a long way. And uh, people, uh, you know, drink alcohol and pop pills. And I was amazed how many new movies are coming out on Christmas Day. Talk of distractions. And all these new movies, and they're going to show first on Christmas Day. And I thought, wow, what a, a, a distraction. Anyway, and then, um, you know, we know that God is righteous. So any, any time that there's the opportunity to come close to God or God coming close to us, like Christmas, like if this is really Emmanuel and this is really God who is coming with us and he became one of us and to identify with us and so they had the opportunity to get close to God, people sense that God is righteous, that God's always right. And the closer I get to him, the more I realize I'm usually wrong. And so we stay away or we create distractions, or we blame somebody else for the wrong that's in our lives because we feel guilty and we feel shame, and it makes us feel tired and irritable and exhausted and, and so on and so forth. And so we just tell ourselves, well, I'm sure God grades on the curve, so I'm not going to think about how his righteousness. I just know I'm better than the other guy, and so that should be enough you know, for God to be satisfied. Or we just don't think about it at all, or, or maybe we do set out to change. Maybe we, at Christmas time, start thinking, wow, you know, Uh, maybe I do need to change. And we give it a shot, and we find out we can't. You ever try to change your life by yourself and discover how frustrating you ever make a New Year's resolution, right? Um, And no matter how hard we try, I end up, I'm still selfish. I still lie. I still have pride. I'm still impatient and angry and on and on and on and on. And the reason is, the Bible says, we're addicted to wrong. It's in our nature, Romans chapter 6 says we're addicted to the wrong that we do, like we were born with it, uh, caught up in our nature, and um, our addiction to wrong, the Bible says, leads to death. It's the opposite of life. Uh, one of my favorite verses that Jesus says is in John 10, 10, he says, uh, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy your life. That's what the enemy's out to do, you know, and, uh, but Jesus says, I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly. And uh, deep down inside, I keep saying to myself, are we living abundantly? Are we living out what Jesus came to give? Do we experience that abundance in our life? Uh, Death is separation from God, but when we become addicted to Jesus, all of a sudden there's this addiction to life instead of death. Uh, The addiction that leads to life instead of death. And so when you embrace and accept this God who's always right, You need to know, in addition to that, that God, this God who is always right, is also always gracious. Gracious. Uh, And grace is scandalous, right? You need to know that God is gracious, but it's scandalous. It's so different than everything else. Um, Jesus, who represents God's uh, perfectly, God's nature perfectly, is full, the Bible says, of grace. He is so different than his religious peers, all the Pharisees and all of that, the scribes. He's so different than any other religious leader. He is full of grace. And grace, as you know, is undeserved favor. There's no need to really turn down the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, if the grace of God is really that abundant. If the grace of God is half as good as Jesus says it is, there's no need to downplay the holiness of God uh, because his grace is extravagant. In John chapter 1, there's kind of the uh, introduction to Jesus in John's gospel. And in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says that uh, Jesus was the word in the beginning and the word is of God is what became flesh in the person of Jesus. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What is the glory of Jesus? What makes him so glorious? What makes you want to brag about him? Why do you want to come here and sing about him? What's his glory? What's, his, what's so special about him? Uh, we have seen his glory, glory as of, the, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What makes Jesus so special, so different? What makes the God of the universe so unique from all the other gods that people worship? He's full of grace and truth, and I love this next. I mean, the next verse talks about John the Baptist, but the verse after that, verse sixteen, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. We have all received from the fullness of the glory of Jesus, who is full of grace, more grace than we even realize. (laughs) Grace is undeserved favor, the favor of God that's not deserved, that's not earned, you know? And uh, I just think this is such a, Uh, exciting thing that we have received out of his fullness this grace upon grace. Uh, The next verse says, For the law, religion, came through Moses. Gave it to the Jews, the Ten Commandments, and all, all that's involved in that. It says, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Religion and the shame and the guilt and the realization of the gap between God's rightness and our rightness came through Moses and the law. But grace, the only thing that can bridge the gap for us, the only thing that can close the gap, grace came to us through the person of Jesus at Christmas time. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, meaning Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What do we know about God? He's full of grace and truth. He is altogether righteous, but he's altogether gracious. Um, in, uh, when Paul wrote to Titus and talked to him about what Christmas is all about, here's what he said in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people bringing a closing of this gap between us and God for all people. It came in the form of grace in the person of Jesus, training us. What trains us? I love this. You know, for the grace of God trains us. What trains us? Do more laws and more rules and a bigger stick? Is that what we need to have training? No. No. Look what it says, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What trains us? What changes us? The grace of God changes us. That's what changes us. If the grace that Jesus came to give us is even half true, it's way more than we can even imagine. The book of Hebrews says, Strive for holiness without which no one will see God. The very next verse says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. I love that. Strive for holiness, because without holiness, no one will see God. And then see to it. Now, I think there's a lot of people in your life that you need to see to it that they don't come up short of the grace of God, that they pass out of this life without ever discovering the grace of God. We all have people in our lives. See all these empty seats here? You have to fill them. You know. See to it that nobody in your sphere of influence comes short of the grace of God, because that's the only way to experience holiness, It's through the gift of God's salvation, uh, through what Jesus did on the cross. One other place that talks about this in um, Romans, Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, Uh, this is such a great passage. Romans three twenty one says, "But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's a way to be right with God apart from right and wrong. Listen, this is great news. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the law and the prophets point to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God." And are justified by his grace as a gift through the buyback, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross and gave his life in our place, God created a buyback program where through faith in the person of Jesus and what he did for you, you can be reconciled back to God. And that gap between God's rightness and our rightness is closed. It's such great news. And uh, he goes on here. He says, um, verse 25, whom God put forward, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Uh, Life is in the blood. He gave up his blood. He gave up his life. Uh, He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. And uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That God might be perfectly right in forgiving all these sins, that he might be just, and that he might justify us. He didn't just sweep sins under the rug. He paid for them himself. He sacrificed himself in the person of Christ in order to absorb our sins. Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9 Uh, Again, same, um, you know, for by grace you've been saved through faith, right? It's a gift, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. The grace of God, the gift of God to declare us righteous on the basis of what Jesus did. Every last person on earth is either addicted to their old nature or addicted to Christ, addicted to unrighteousness or addicted to God's Grace. And if you think about God, the God that you came here to worship this morning, and somebody were to ask you, um, do you believe in God? And you were to say, "Uh, yes, I do believe in God. And then they were to ask you, well, what is this God like? What is the God that you believe in? What's the God that you came here to worship this morning? What's he really like? And uh, do you have like a verse of scripture that, you know, comes to your mind? I always think of this uh, passage in uh, Jonah. I just love the description that Jonah has. And Jonah's mad at God for being like this. So his description is kind of like a voicing of this anger at God for being the way he is. And uh, here's what he says. He says, you know, in uh, Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, you know what? I knew that you were a gracious and a merciful and a slow to anger and an abounding in love uh, relenting from disaster. I can't stand you being like that. And I'm like, Jonah, you were just in the belly of a fish. You would be like in deep weeds if God wasn't like this. He's gracious. He's uh, compassionate. He's abounding in love. He's you know merciful and, and so on. Uh, that's the way God is. God is a God of grace. He delights in giving undeserved favor to people You know, who are under deserving, who are undeserving. And it's humbling to receive that from God, isn't it? I think God has three options when it comes to us, right? The first option is he could deal with us with justice. Justice is you get what you deserve. A lot of times people will say, I just want justice to be served. But you know what? Nobody really wants justice. Justice is you would get what you deserve. If we got what we deserve from God, uh, I mean, we'd all be eliminated, right? Justice. Uh, the second option God has is um, mercy. Uh, God is a righteous judge. Hebrews 4:13 says, "None of us are hidden from His sight." You know, He is a judge. He is a judge, but He chooses not to relate to us through justice. The second option God has is mercy, and the mercy is the idea of giving somebody a little bit less than they deserve. They might deserve justice, but in mercy, I'm going to give them a little bit less. One time, I uh, drove into church. Uh, one, I think it was you know, like late afternoon, and it's, I looked in the windows downstairs and I thought I saw a couple of kids. And um, sure enough, I come in the front door, I'm quiet, you know, and I go in the front door and nobody else was here. And I saw that the fire extinguishers had been shot off. There were crayons mashed into the rug, crayons on the walls, and there were a couple of kids who just broke in somehow and did whatever. And so as quietly as I could and as fast as I could, which is hard for me to go fast and be quiet at the same time, But anyway, I went downstairs, and uh, they were in Pastor Dan's office climbing out the window because the ground is level right outside of that window. And I lurched, and I grabbed the last kid by his sneaker. I caught him, and I pulled him back in, right? What's your name? I said to the kid. The kid is, you know, nervous. I don't know. They were like teenagers. And uh, what's your name? And he told me his name. I said, what's your phone number? Who's your mom and dad, you know? And he said, I'm not telling you get a little snippy. I said, well, then I'm going to have to call the cops, you know. All right, all right, you know. So then he gives me his number. What's your friend's name? I'm not ratting him. Well, then I'm going to have to call the cops. All right, all right. It's so-and-so, you know. (laughs) And so I'm writing it down. and take a piece of paper and write down the numbers and this and that and the other thing. And then, you know, I thought about some things I had done as a kid, and I thought, I'm not going to call these kids parents. The poor kids were scared to death, right? And, you know, I, I can pay to fill up the fire extinguishers, and uh, we can get the crayons out of the rug and clean them. I can clean the crayons off the wall and so on and so forth. They showed mercy, I thought, you know. I thought I was doing pretty good to show mercy. Um, And so I never called. But the third option is not justice, not mercy, it's grace. If I had showed grace to those kids, I might have said, hey, how about I get some tickets to an NFL game and we go down and watch the Giants play? couple weeks how about if i buy some tickets for us to go to the harbor yard and see the monster truck show whatever these kids are into now that's nuts you say right gee kind of pastor are you you know you catch the kids wrecking the place and you don't you know and you're going to just go and show them grace that's what grace is grace is giving to undeserving people And that's the way God has chosen to deal with us. And God says, you know, look, I sent my son into the world. He's full of grace and truth. And you have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from his fullness. Now get out into the world and make the truth about me known. I'm not looking to hold people's feet to the fire. I'm not looking to punish people. I punished my son in their place. I'm looking to spread grace to the world through my son and through his sacrifice. I'm looking to spend my grace on the people that I've created who need it. And I know that we all say inside of ourselves, oh, that's so risky. Yeah, it's scandalous. It's scandalous. It comes back to bite you half the time. Right? And you feel like, wow, you know, now I've invested and you're looking for the return and it doesn't come and so forth. It's a radical, revolutionary way of living that Jesus introduced to us. Grace-based living. It's different than any other religion. Uh, the law and religion came through Moses and through the Jewish people, but grace and truth has come to us through Jesus Christ. Religion intensifies everybody's sense of guilt and shame. Grace intensifies people's sense of joy there's hope we sang about it this morning there's hope if it's true that God will deal with me in grace and will extend to me the favor that I need to close the gap between me and himself if God will give to me as a free gift eternal life after this life the free gift of God Romans says you know is everlasting life and it comes as a gift it, it's good news. It's the core of the gospel. It's the main reason why Jesus came. Have you ever thought about this, that the, the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, do you remember what it was? What did he do? He made wine out of water. You remember that? That was the first miracle. Now, if you were, if you, were uh, you know, launching a ministry, this is going to be your signature miracle. This is going to be the first thing you ever do to launch your new business. Or to launch your new campaign. Well, maybe you're going to be a co- political campaign. Maybe you're going to introduce the kingdom of God into the world. What's going to be your first miracle? I would think you'd think about that. I think there are presidential candidates who are thinking about, like, Christie down in New Jersey. What should my first move be? Right? You would think long and hard about it. Because that's going to be like a signature. And Jesus' signature miracle as he makes wine to keep the party going. Weddings, you know, in Jesus' day were a big deal. Like the, the whole town came, and they lasted at least a week. And so for the couple to run out of wine was like a big deal. It was like very embarrassed, full of shame. And you know what Jesus does? Crazy. He uses the water pots that the Jewish people use for all their ceremonial cleansing. And he says, dump that, and I'm going to fill it with wine, new wine, good wine right you remember that and i have to think if you were going to have a signature miracle that was going to signify what you were all about why you came into the world and what you're about to do would you make it about joy because that's what it seems to me jesus signature miracle we just sang it joy to the world the lord has come right And so Jesus makes the wine to keep the party going, to keep the joy, to uh, not have the couple embarrassed and feel guilty and bring shame to them and so forth. He brings joy to the world and he brings joy into our lives. That's what it means to live abundantly. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The Bible actually says that all of human history is moving toward a giant wedding. If you read it, and we don't have time, but Revelation 19, Revelation 20, This whole thing is moving to this massive wedding between the son, the only begotten son of God, and his bride, the church. And you read about it in in Revelation 19. That's where everything's going. Blessed, happy is the person who's got an invitation to that occasion. That's the entree into eternity, into heaven, is this wedding supper, this wedding feast. And so here's Jesus and they're at this wedding, and there's no wine, right? And his mother is like, you know, do something. <laughs> I don't know how much Mary really understood about Jesus and, and so forth, um, uh, how much she really knew what he was all about. But um, she's like, you know, she had a sense. Hey, they're out of wine, she says to, the, to Jesus. And uh, you remember what Jesus says back to her? He, he's kind of, a, it's kind of a sharp answer. It's kind of like you wouldn't expect him to say. Uh, He says, you know, uh, my hour hasn't come. Almost like, you know, I I can't do anything about this. My hour hasn't come. Every time Jesus talks about his hour, it's always, in John, a reference to his death on the cross. He says, my hour hasn't come. My death on the cross hasn't come. And and what's the symbol of his death on the cross? What do we do every communion? Well, we're Baptists, so we don't do wine, but we do grape juice. But really, it should be wine, right? Because wine is the symbol of his blood, And so Jesus takes these old pots that are full of all the ceremonial cleansing from religion and all of that stuff, dumps it out and fills it with new wine, his blood, he's thinking about. I've done enough weddings and been to enough weddings to know that single people are always thinking at weddings, I wonder what my wedding is going to be like, right? It's torture for some single people to go to yet another wedding. It's really hard. And I'm thinking of Jesus as a single person who's got this massive wedding that his father has promised him off in the future. And his first miracle, probably the most significant miracle, is he takes all that ceremonial stuff of religion and dumps it and offers us the new wine of his sacrifice on the cross which qualifies us to be the bride that becomes a part of this massive wedding. Wine is the symbol of his blood shed on the cross. His life is given as a substitute for ours. And so I would tell you this morning that the only place that the righteousness of God, God is always right, and the graciousness of God come together is on the cross of Jesus Christ, where his blood was shed, to reconcile us to close the gap between the rightness of God and the wrongness of us and it comes as the gift of christmas the indescribable gift that god gave us at christmas time in the person of jesus christ and that's why there is salvation in no other name other than the name of jesus christ there is no other way to be reconciled to god than through that baby who came to earth on that first christmas morning the only place the unrighteousness of our lives can be eliminated and the grace of god experienced is in the person of jesus christ and how does that become ours how do we access that experience that grace there's only one way faith the bible says from one end of the bible to the other god says trust me put your faith in the person of my son that you might experience this gift that I have for you because I love you. It's the gift of Christmas. It's not justice. It's not even mercy. It's grace. It's a life of abundance, spiritually speaking, in order that we might enjoy the very grace and the gift of the God who loves us eternally. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for making yourself known to us, for revealing yourself to us. I thank you that Jesus came, and when we take the time to study Jesus and to listen to what he said and to read his word, we begin to discover what you are really like, and this morning as we think about how right you are, you're always right, and uh, that is such a comfort to us when we understand it correctly, and when we surrender and submit ourselves to you, when we humbly place ourselves alongside of you. And allow your grace to become our portion, to become our food, to become our, uh, the, the stuff of our relationship with you. We thank you, Father, for your infinite grace. And it makes us desire to be more like you, to be both righteous and gracious at the same time. And as that, as that combination, Father, of your qualities and your personality gets into us, may we have that passion to become increasingly more like you not compromising your rightness but certainly embracing to the full of of our the fullness of our ability the grace that you want to give us in Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen